Hello and welcome to episode 214 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, a star is born, and his name is Steven Spielberg, as we'll be reviewing The Fablements, the great director's latest film, and the story of his childhood and parents' divorce. But first, how are you, Scott? Doing well. It's uh, it's officially cold in New York City, I think it's safe to say. I am um, starting to don scarves and um, gloves as I as I set out from my from my apartment. So I guess that's how you know. But I don't mind it all that much. It's not below freezing yet, so we're still not uncomfortable. If that's the best way to put it. But you I'm just, doing great. It's December. You know, yeah. every single time I open up the AMC app, I see oh, there's another movie I should see coming out next week, and that's uh, next week. That's The Whale and Empire of Light. So you know, really, really great fair coming up for me. <laughs> In the next few weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, you sure about that? Do you want to retract your statement at all, given that those are the two films that are coming up? But Well, I, I, um, I feel, as a Sam Mendes stan, I, I have to go see Empire of Light. And considering the fact that Brendan Fraser is probably going to win an Oscar, I probably should see that movie, too. Although, that hasn't stopped me from not seeing things like Judy and yeah. The Eyes of Tammy Faye or whatever the last few years. So maybe I, I mean, should reconsider. Uh, Elvis is probably not going to be is going to be nominated for Best Picture, and I'm not going to watch that. So, um, I mean, you, you know, I, I think I mentioned on the podcast. The only reason I saw that movie is because that's what my friend wanted to see when I was hanging right. Out yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't see this movie. We make sacrifices. Yeah, we make sacrifices that we have to, but uh, it's okay to draw the line in certain places as well. Too, I, I will certainly be doing it. But uh, you've done it yeah, every no, year I'm, the last couple. You know, the la- at least the last two years, you you've certainly done that. I have, yeah um you got to stick to your principles um but yeah no i'm going to be seeing both of those films as well even though they don't i mean the whale is probably going to be depressing darren aronofsky bs and then empire of light just looks like it's unbelievably boring but um you know we'll we'll see what happens i I generally like sam mendez not as much as you probably but um obviously his last film was one that we were both huge fans of so um the real question is, will there Empire is of Light make more than the film we're talking about today? Yeah, I just, when I was like writing the summary for this episode, I went on Wikipedia and like it was just the most depressing sentence ever to see like at the end of the first, you know, section, the intro section on Fableman's, the Fableman's page. It just says, this film made $5.5 million on a $40 million budget. I was like, God, what, are, his, what have his, we done? It's the biggest bomb ever probably, right? What if we? I mean, yeah, I can't imagine that there's a Spielberg film that has made less than five point five million before. Um, well, I just mean more like versus the budget because I don't know, like how much did West Side Story cost? To make? It might have yeah. been a bigger. It might have been. It, it only made forty million, but it could have. It might have been a bigger bomb. I don't know, because this film only cost forty million to make. I don't remember what West Side mm-hmm. Story cost. I feel like it had to have cost a lot more money than that. Well, either way, it's quite depressing. Um, but you know, I, maybe there's there's hope again. The whole knives out situation, you know, there's there's something there possibly. But we litigated that last week. No need to uh, to drudge up that again. Um, we spent enough time certainly uh, last week. But uh, Scott, we can we move on it. now. Our film, <laughs> yeah, we did. Our film uh, today, as we've been alluding to, is The Fablements, the thirtieth feature from one of the greatest directors to ever pick up a camera, Steven Spielberg. The Fablements is Spielberg's dramatization of his younger years and the discovery of his filmmaking abilities set against the backdrop of his parents' divorce. The film opens with young Sammy Fableman, played as a child by Matteo Zorian and as a teen by Gabriel LaBelle, 
attending his first ever movie, 1952's The Greatest Show on Earth, with his mother, Mitzi, played by Michelle Williams, and his father, Bert, played by Paul Dano. Simultaneously and entra entranced and terrified by the film's bravura train crash sequence, Sammy soon has a train set of his own, and his artistically inclined mother encourages him to pick up the family's movie camera and film the train crashes he continues to instigate with said train set, in hopes that it will help Sammy to conquer his fear. Sammy obliges, and the rest will soon become history, as we see the young Sammy's almost instant eye for the, cine for the cinematic progress through adolescence and into his teenage years. All the while, however, Sammy, and more importantly, his camera, have discovered a secret. His mother, Mitzi, is involved in an emotional affair with his father's best friend, Benny, played by Seth Rogen. Sammy's discovery sets into action a series of events that will take the family from Arizona to California and eventually to their inevitable fracture. As he navigates through the trials and tribulations of his family and youth, Sammy falls in and out and in love again with movie making and becomes fascinated with how his gifts behind the camera help him to process the often tougher realities of his own life. Scott DeSpielberg's epic coming-of-age story display all of the filmmaking prowess that has captivated audiences for more than 50 years, or is this so-called victory lap a bloated and overly self-congratulatory bore? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed watching this movie. I didn't have huge expectations going into it. I think I'd even talked about on the podcast how seeing the trailer wasn't getting me that excited to go see this movie, especially coupled with the fact that it's over 150 minutes, I think. Um, probably not with the credits. Yeah, I mean, you take the credits out, maybe it's a little bit shorter. Sure. But I wasn't thrilled that I was going to go watch a 151 minute movie about Steven Spielberg and how great he was as a kid <laughs> making movies, um, which on paper sounds incredibly self-congratulatory, no doubt. But I don't know, man. He just knows how to make a movie, I guess. <laughs> this is the best thing to say. And it's obviously there's some very, you know, extremely meta commentary there. But I mean, the guy is making a movie that is so easy to watch about him making movies as a kid that are, you know, inspiring, very easy to watch um, stuff that you don't necessarily think about as watching a movie per se. I mean, he has all these screenings throughout the film of his projects. And I doubt many people there would say that like, oh, like we're watching like, a theatrical movie right some of them are like home projects some of them are like shoots or mm -hmm. there's the one obviously towards the end of the movie with the high school beach day like it's almost more of a compilation of of different moments almost something different than you typically would see in a movie theater but those the eye for his eye for the camera again all this is dramatized i'm sure all of this is exaggerated i think it's probably safe to say there's probably some exaggerated moments a lot a but, lot of the events he has confirmed now again to, to what degree, you know, they happen right. as they are portrayed in the film is probably another right. question. But everything, including, you know, some of the more, you know, um, exaggerated details. Like, I mean, again, the fact that he discovers his his uh, mother's affair and makes this film about it, all that apparently happened. The final scene, which we see in the movie, which I'm not going to spoil at all um, until later in the review, because it's you need to just experience it for yourself without knowing anything. But that actually happened as well. And it's one of those things that you might, you know, look at the first time and be like, okay, seriously, did that, is that really how it went down? He says it is. I, I did see a New York Post article 
um, <laughs> earlier today. Oh, well, yeah. the, movie, the New York Post. Which, I know, okay, I know. That's well, why I had to preface on. it. I know, I'm saying it yeah. with tongue in cheek here. But apparently he didn't have a girlfriend in high school, <laughs> which is oh, okay. what apparently his friends from high school said. So uh, it does actually probably make you think differently about <laughs> maybe some of the events of the, I don't know, beginning of the third act of the movie and whatnot if he doesn't have a girlfriend there. Which honestly... Thank God that he didn't actually date that person because wow, what a what a what a woman that was. Um, just one of the funniest scenes probably the entire year with her. Anyway, yeah, not well, to get ahead of myself. Of, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, go ahead. We'll get into her and her performance later. But yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Um, to to zoom back out again and, and talk a little bit more about the forest before we take a closer look at some of the trees. I just think that the the film is just incredibly watchable. Um, as I sort of said at the start, like it's extremely easy i think i think gabriel labelle is awesome in, in this film i think he does such an incredible job um i know he's not a child actor he's obviously playing like a late teen early 20s spielberg in this film and the actor himself is i think in his mid-20s or whatever but incredibly great performance from him in my opinion i do think that if i had to highlight one if there's like an A plot and a B plot of the film, I do think the A plot of the, and they inter they intertwine, obviously. But I think the A plot of the film of him just discovering film and becoming a burgeoning filmmaker in his own right, even if it's home video, he starts with home videos, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is just like some of the best stuff to watch. I do think that the the parental stuff is a bit is some at times uneven. I think there's some moments that that are really effective and then others. I don't know. It just it, it didn't always add up to me uh, with with the film. But obviously to Spielberg, it could be undeniable to it, it feels undeniable that, that these things are, in a, you know, inextricable from each other. This notion of his family and his filmmaking and his parents, each of his parents in their own way, impacting and motivating him on his film career. Um, so it makes sense that the stories are ultimately together. It, it does feel that everything doesn't perfectly add up, but not everything has to add up in a movie like this. Um, this is again supposed to be dramatizing um, real experiences that he had, and you know we talk time and time again on this podcast about biopics and how sometimes that that reality is that you're dealing with is sometimes just what you have to deal with. Um, but overall, I really enjoyed this film. I liked it way more than I expected, which I think I said at the start. The performances were solid. I don't know if I'm as over the moon about Michelle Williams in this film as everyone else seems to be. Thought she was really great. I'm not sure that I necessarily feel as strongly as everyone else does after watching this movie that she should be, you know, and if not the top spot, then, you know, in the top contention for the Oscar this year. Paul Dano was good as well. Enjoyed his performance. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll get into some, some more stuff there. But yeah, I think that the real highlight of this, and again, I think there's such an interesting meta commentary about this is that I think the cinematography in this film is just something that's really spectacular. And when you're when you're taking a film that a, a lot of which is about, again, to repeat myself, maybe a little bit about trying to get the right shots and to inspire people with the right shots and really to frame a moment that you're trying to capture in the right way. And you're framing that moment in a way that's really affecting, you know, the, there's like some special meta-ness to it that I think really really eats at me, which I enjoy. Um, so yeah, great stuff overall. Steven Spielberg, Tony Kushner, Janusz Kaminski on the cinema, uh, the DP there. John really Williams. great stuff. Yeah. And yeah, John Williams, of course. Yeah. 
as well. The score is really fantastic. So a really technically well-made film, really easy to watch. And it just, it's big vibes, man. I don't know. Like, like Stevie, sorry, Sammy making movies when he's a kid. Um, I enjoyed watching him do it. I'm sure maybe it wasn't, didn't exactly go that way to your point around things being dramatized, events maybe being true, but then being dramatized and exaggerated, et cetera. So maybe it wasn't as interesting, you know, if you were there in the moment, but it certainly was interesting the way it was recreated and I enjoyed it for that. The movie's incredible, Scott. Um, I'll just come right out and say it. Um, and it is, well, let me just say, I, for one, never doubted um, our Lord and Savior, Steven Spielberg. But um, You have a lot it, of Lords and Saviors. Is, I think you're going to have to check yourself when you're talking about all the different Lords and Saviors you have in, in media. It is, a, it is um, well, yeah, I just mean in terms of know, the arc I'm, of I'm cinema itself, he yeah. is the Lord and Savior. But um, it is different. It is a different film, though, I think, from the one that's portrayed in the trailers. Because you see the trailers and you think, um yeah. oh you know this is yeah. well yeah it's it's overly sentimental right it's you know corny it's that like oh the power of movies movies can save the world and all of that you know kind of stuff and you know maybe you th think of it in the same light as you think of some of these other directors dramatizing their childhood uh films that we've had recently you know you, you think about roma you think about belfast um and, you know, other films like that. But, um, you know, maybe you think about that in a positive or negative light, whatever. But this movie is not that. Um, it touches on some pretty difficult topics. And, and honestly, the central, you know, what is running through the film in, in his discovery of, you know, his filmmaking ability. And yes, he is discovering that he's great at making films. There are these like, oh, the wondrous, you know, um, effects of cinema type moments but also he's comparing all of this to what's going on with his parents and the fracture that he sees that is going on between them and the fact that he is using that like filmmaking and his gifts there to sort of not only process um what's going on with his family but also sort of move on from them because there's a scene early on with judd hirsch who plays the uncle boris um, he shows up for one scene and he gives him sort of this whole monologue about, you know, you're going to have to choose between your family and your art. Right. And that's kind of the tension in the movie. Right. Is that um, he's, you know, being faced with a family that is fracturing um, and also a, a family that isn't always encouraging of his his pursuits, at least his father isn't. Um, and it is affecting his ability to make, I mean, there, there's a long portion in the film in the movie where he's not making, he doesn't, he doesn't pick up the camera when they move from Arizona to California. It takes him a while to like actually start making films again. His mother kind of has to be the one to encourage him to do it. Um, and eventually how it ends up, you know, he's, he is kind of like saying, okay, I have to go do this now. Like I am, if I'm going to be serious about, filmmaking and pursue this i am going to have to like make this the be all and end all for me and not my family that's not a, a sentimental you know idea there right like that that's not necessarily gonna you know make you feel all warm and fuzzy right that this is the conclusion that he has to come to now because it's steven spielberg right 
even amidst all of that, he can't resist. And he has to give us this last scene, which is sort of this very optimistic, hopeful thing, because that's just what Steven Spielberg does, even in Schindler's List, right, which is a movie about the darkest time in human history. The final note is one that is hopeful in the movie. Um, well, I it's think it's cathartic. I don't I don't know if I describe it as hopeful, but it's certainly very cathartic. I mean, I think it, well, we, we don't have to litigate Schindler's List, but I think it's hopeful in the sense that, you know, this is the impact that one person made. Here's the impact that, you know, a person can continue to make, um, even though we're not, you know, facing the same exact, same exact situation that they were. Um, you know, generations exist because of this one person. But anyway, that's Schindler's List. The point is Spielberg can't resist. He gives it to us anyway. But the journey to get there is filled with a lot of heartbreaking moments as much as it is, you know, these, you know, the power of cinema. Wow. Like the Spielberg look, all of that stuff that you expect to see in this film. Um, so I think it's a, it's a rougher film maybe than people are expecting while still being to your point, incredibly watchable, like absurdly watchable, um, which yeah. is something that Steven Spielberg is just the master of. I mean, it, you don't feel the length at all, even though, I mean, like, it, it is a heavy vibes movie, and, like, that's why I loved it so much, because, you know, like, that's, for me at least, that's, like, the most important thing is, in any movie, mm -hmm. is what are the vibes? Um, and even so even though it doesn't have, like, a whole lot of plot, per se, like, it just, you, you never get tired of watching it. It just, you know, moves along so easy. It, it's so effortless, and yet there's so much craft, like, in every single aspect of the movie. Um, and there are times when, again, you know, you have like the cinematography, you have the score, you have all of the technical traffic, but there are times when he just like, there are silent scenes or, you know, dialogue free scenes where he, you know, shows what he can do and show the actors show what they can do. And there's so much in here, I think about the process of making a film, not just again, his, his discovery and all that with his family and, and the things that are personal to him, but like discovering that the camera can portray truth, discovering that people have different interpretations of art, right? There's some really interesting stuff that I like that happens late on with sort of this bully that um, he puts in the film, his, his senior skip day film. I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit on some of this stuff, but the point is there's so much in this movie um it it feels jam-packed with ideas and themes and just fascinating moments from his life um yes it is true as many people have pointed out that as a filmmaker he never really faces any sort of adversity adversity or personal uh in terms of his ability to make a film like he is the first time he picks up a camera he is steven spielberg pretty much um but, you know, there are some people who are like that, I guess. You know, there are some people who are who are geniuses and he probably qualifies. So um, I don't have a problem with him choosing to portray it. If that's how it really was, that's how it really was. There's no no need to be humble, Stevie. Like, you know, flex flex it if you got it. Um, and I mean, I mean so, my, my response to that is like, I don't know. Do you need to see Steven Spielberg struggling to make his first thing? Like, I don't know. Like, it's. I don't believe that's how it actually happened. He's just like us. He's just like us. I don't need Steven Spielberg like to be just like me. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want that. Uh, I, I saw a tweet today. Of, it was like 
one of the few negative reviews of the movie was like from Gawker or something that was saying like, um, oh, right. it, basically yeah. the the question I asked of like, oh, is this a self-congratulatory bore? It was like, that's what they were saying is Steven Spielberg has made a movie about how great he is at making movies. And aren't we so lucky that he decided to pick up a camera as a child? And all the replies on the tweet are just, yes, yes, we yes. are. Yes, yes, we, we definitely are. Um, so that's, that's kind of my take on the whole situation. I mean, I definitely think there is a cynical read of this film that is very self-congratulatory. Look, the film portrays him in an incredibly prolific light in terms of his ability to make movies at a very young age. Mm-hmm. If that were true or if that weren't true, I don't really care. Like, it just doesn't feel like what the movie it's not even really what he feel like. It feels like he's even trying to do with the movie, although it does end up coming out that way, which I just think it's, that makes it a very cynical take. Um, yeah. And, and again, the he is having to go. He is having to go through a lot of personal turmoil to accept this, that he is this filmmaker and to actually make that a serious pursuit in his life. So it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, I was born. I'm a genius filmmaker the road has been paved with gold for me, like my entire life. Um, you know, he, there, there, he does have to face a lot of struggle. Um, well, not probably not relative with, to, yeah, yeah, sure. Not, not, not struggle in terms of his ability, again, his command of his craft, but in terms of coming into his own and making, you know, decisions about, you know, pursuing film and, that in relation to what's going on with his family again that's the central tension in the movie it's just like the uh we can move on from this point it's probably belaboring it but it's it's just a really weird take to look at a movie about i think what many people would agree is one of the great you know living filmmakers or filmmakers of all time even if he's not your favorite like he clearly has had like a huge impact on them on, on the world of film and say that why you know why did this guy make a movie his life's so easy it's so self-congratulatory like he's not really facing any adversity oh he had like a tough family life boohoo like that that's like kind of like there's just like people watching this movie just like trying to find a way to like i don't know be like ridicule spielberg for just having a really easy life that this is like what it feels like to me it it is like the gawker types out there having that commentary and, it's and to be fair like maybe yeah. people, maybe most people aren't interested in seeing this movie and aren't and maybe even gawker has a point around like people are interested in seeing this movie because who cares whether like steven spielberg was good at making movies when he was 16 and fair enough like maybe most people don't care about that maybe you know amblin shouldn't dump 40 million dollars into making this movie because people don't care about it at the same time that's not really why he made the movie either so it feels it just feels weird Feels like there's conversations around. I mean, it almost feels like a like a parallel conversation with Armageddon time. Obviously, there's like a lot more going on in that movie, mm-hmm. and people have prob that prob people have problems with, in quotation marks. But it feels like why are white? It feels like the conversation is like why are white filmmakers who are privileged making making films about their childhood? Is like kind of like the question, and the point is just like because it's interesting, even if it's not like the most difficult life that anyone could ever live. Um, I don't know. And then when they when they make a film that is actually, uh, you know, about struggle, which apparently is the case with Bardo or whatever. Um, sure. It's like, why, you know, oh, this guy hasn't really had a hard life or whatever. He's won two Oscars. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it's, I mean, it's kind of a lose-lose situation. Yeah. But 
There probably so we can all agree that Alfonso Coron luckily was the first person to do it and so faced zero ridicule because he, yeah. he innovated yeah. the space. <laughs> I mean, Roma is a fantastic film. Um, well, it's also interesting too, to, just to bring us back into the conversation. I think Roma is like, I haven't seen Bardo yet. I haven't seen Empire of Light. So I don't have a perspective on either of those movies. I'm going to see them soon. But I kind of feel like, unlike Belfast, insert other movie that were, even even Armageddon Time and the Fable, even Armageddon Time, I would say, although I think there's some, I don't know, I'm mixed on that in terms of how it relates to this. I mean, I loved Armageddon Time, but Roma really feels like a movie that skewed sentimentalism as well. Yeah. Like, I don't think that, like, there's obviously some nostalgia in the movie for that period of time that Alfonso Cuaron grew up in Mexico, but there's like some really difficult stuff to watch in that movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and it is not, it is not sentimental, even if it still has some nostalgia in it. And although I think we can all agree that the Mexico city that Alfonso Cuaron grew up in is probably a more difficult life than Steven Spielberg. I think both filmmakers are interested in not just like painting this sort of like very nostalgic, sentimental picture Most of their color, childhood yeah. and more just like telling a very interesting story with stuff to think about. Um, that's really watchable. So I think that of all the other types of this this kind of movie we've had recently, I feel like Fableman's is closest to the one that, in my opinion, did it the best and was the first one, which was Rama. So yeah, an interesting comparison. Yeah, I mean, just wrapping up on my general impressions, I mean, yeah, technically the movie is fantastic. Like $40 million, it looks like all movies should look. Like I have zero issues with the visual, you know, landscape of this movie. I think it's beautiful to look at as most Steven Spielberg films are. And I think the performances, yeah, like the performances which stand, stand out the most to me, and we can transition to talking about the performances now, are the younger actors and the people who show up for like one scene or or an extended, you know, cameo basically. Like, um, you know, Scott's you just trying Chloe to get his boy East. in there at the end of the movie. Well, no, I mean, he's, he's in, in there, there, but I'm saying... I'm saying you mentioned Chloe East who plays Monica, which is his girlfriend. Yeah. Um, she's in more than one scene, but it's like a lot of people have compared this to Skylar Gisondo's role in uh, Licorice Pizza as sort of like the scene stealer sure. who comes on. And um, yeah, you mentioned she has this pretty hilarious, like just all over the place scene where like it's, after Dude, their first running. meeting and walk in her like room. run don't walk the yeah. opposite direction of this woman <laughs> like good lord i mean she's she's somehow she manages to be kind of charming but yeah i mean the the note that she leads off on is is pretty chaotic Ooh. um yeah but so she's great yeah you know the people who are in one scene like judd hirsch david lynch um you know they really make the most of their that one you know seeing their time in the spotlight and then yeah the young actors are terrific like i mean gabriel labelle not enough people are talking about him he is the best performance Agreed. in the movie for me i agree um easily uh I, I don't i mean in the just world he would be in the best actor conversation best actor isn't even a strong category this year i don't know if people are really talking about him but it doesn't feel like they are and they definitely should be because like it's I don't very think really talking about this movie that much to be honest well, I mean, it's, it will get the it's obvious nominations. Fa favorite right. for best picture, but yeah, at, at this particular time, it's the favorite. But um, that that could change, you know. Uh, again, the film didn't do well, and we're still four, 
five, six months out, whatever, from the Oscars. Four months out. Of this <laughs> Four, month, five, six months. Um, <laughs> I just, I never we're, know when they are we're, anymore. We're three, you know, we're move, three months out from the around. Oscars. It's not that, it's not that long. No, it's in, it's in March, so we're like, it's well, three months. Yeah, we're three and a half, three and a half or so. Um, but anyway, who knows what, whether things will change by then. They usually do, but he's fantastic. Yeah. Julia Butters, who plays his sister, uh, one of his sisters, the one who's, you know, has the Reggie. most significant role in the movie. Reggie Ann is her name in real life. Um, she's great again. I mean, we are going to be watching her for a long time. Like, I, I, we've only seen her in two movies now, but I feel very confident in saying that she is, like, very, very high on the list of, like, stars of the future. Because um, I don't even know how old she is. What, like, 12, 13? I mean, she's... But yeah, I mean, is so Reggie her name in real life? Because I know, I know one of his sisters no, is named Anne, right? Anne. That's what I said a second ago. Her. her I'm name sorry. In real I, life I thought you Anne. said Anne. Yeah. I thought you said and her name in real life. So no, no. <laughs> I'm just no. Anne is her name. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's actually a screenwriter too in real life, and I don't think and she wrote the first screen. treatment of this movie, didn't she? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then Tony Kushner, and, and yeah, the, Tony Kushner, like he did write the the screenplay for this, and there, you know, apparently he read hers and was like, "This is good," but this kind of needs to be written by somebody who's outside of the family, right? Like you kind of need that perspective on it. Um, Obviously this needs to be written by a man. <laughs> no, I don't think that I know. Was, I'm just joking. That, but I think he was right about that. But anyway, she's yeah. Julia Butters is great. Like her, her future is, is limitless based on the, um, the two performances we've seen her in so far. Scott, as far as the cast goes, you know, I think you're, we're kind of on the same page, but do you want to talk more about who stood out to you and why? I mean, to me, it's it's Gabriel Lavelle. It's Gabriel Lavelle and it's Gabriel Lavelle. It's just all day in this movie. I think that he was he was for someone who, correct me if I'm wrong here, hasn't really done too much besides this. I think he's was in like the Predator and was really small role. I was like looking at his IMDb. Mm. He has like one minor role in a movie like four years ago that no one would probably remember him from. And. You know, he's 20 years old, I think. I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, he's 20 years old. So he was probably, you know, 18, 19 when this movie was getting shot. He has this just really incredible magnetism, I feel like, for someone so young, so inexperienced. There's a charisma and a charm that is really, really catches the eye. At least it did for me. And I just felt like when I was watching... The movie, the cinema, and again, part of this, I think, has to be credited towards the cinematography as well, to be fair. But I just feel like every shot in every shot, he is either framed in such a way or has this charm or aura on the screen that I just had a really hard time not watching him. And I think that that really speaks volumes for someone who's not incredibly experienced. You know, it'll be interesting to see how his career develops, because I think over time, you'll see how much of it was Spielberg and Kaminsky and etc cetera, etc cetera, and how much of it was truly just his own ability to command the screen but on this sort of like first introduction at least for me it's significant i mean i think it is a really powerful performance from him we i agree with you about julia butters i don't know if i have too much to add to that conversation i think it's probably worth mentioning paul dano and michelle williams just because there is definitely so much conversation sure. around around the latter and Again, maybe because this is this is the like the the plot of the the side like the other part of the plot of the movie that doesn't work as well for me, and I kind of just always prefer to just be more focused on 
you know, Sammy and his and his happenings. And again, these things are all interwoven. I understand how they relate to each other. And it's not like you're fully breaking away when you're going to this other side. But I wasn't as excited to see the next part of the Michelle Williams and Paul Dano side of this. I wasn't that excited to see what the next development was in their marriage. And I think that it is pretty interesting early on. But then I do think their performances just aren't able to hold stuff together after they leave Arizona on that side of it. I just didn't, never really was as interested. Actually, I'll be honest. I thought Seth Rogen was better than both of them um, in the movie. He's good. Yeah, he's I think good. Seth Rogen's... I mean, maybe it's not that much of a surprise. I do think that he's often maybe overlooked for his ability to, to actually act because of the type of comedy or uh, what he's associated with, et cetera. It's not like this is his first good performance ever in a movie. But... I really like, I mean, I really like Seth Rogen in this film. I thought he was better than both Michelle Williams and Paul Dano in this personally. Um, I'm sure that I'm in a minority of opinion on that, but whatever. Don't care. And, but Gabriel LaBelle, I mean, that's, it comes back to that. It comes back to that. And um, for as much of the movie is about Spielberg himself as a director being a character, he's also on the screen in the form of Gabriel LaBelle. And I think that he, Spielberg found, you know, as much as we complained about, Spielberg's choice of actor in last year's West Side Story when he chose Ansel Elgort feel like he sort of did like a make good like we all came we can all come to agreement that he chose well for um well, well for this one so good job on that point yeah he has a good like confidence about him too which yeah, which I like and totally. which is which is a little bit unexpected for the character right especially like these scenes where he goes to California he's getting you know, picked on, he's getting the racist remarks are like getting made against anti-Semitic. Yeah. Anti-Semitic. Yeah. yeah. Anti-Semitic remarks. Yes. And, um, he, um, but he doesn't, he, you know, you think it's going to be like, Oh, he's, you know, cowering a little bit from this, but that's not exactly how he reacts. He's like, um, you know, he, he does stand up for himself a little bit. Um, and you know, especially later on, he, he stands up for himself in front of the two bullies and, um, you know, he calls out the one for having been making out with the, the redhead as he saw in the um, stairwell. stairwell. It's it's just different um, than what I expected. And he's, he's able to sell that, like, even though he is like the new kid or whatever, he you believe like he, he has, he a has this like he has a swagger about him that I think. All, you know, all maybe stems from the fact that he knows there's something that he's really good at, right? Which is making films. And he's always going to be able to to use that. Um, and he does use that eventually to sort of get his comeuppance. Um, well, it's interesting because you say that those, a couple of those moments that you're highlighting where he's showing that confidence is actually when he's not making movies. It's when he's given up making yeah. movies. Um, I think it's interesting. I do think that if I had to point to something that is probably like, I don't know if I believe this is how this happened in real life. It is definitely him standing up to these bullies <laughs> being new in high school. I'm not sure that so, like that is the one thing I'd be like, I'm not sure that this actually happened this way. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, apparently there was only one bully. Um, the, I think the one character Chad, who, Oaks yes, character. Logan is yeah. not, is not a real. That person. doesn't surprise uh -huh. me at all. Yeah. But I, I did like what, where that eventually went with that character. Um, I mean, do you feel like because because I think that character ends up being so important as a sort of like final thread to the filmmaking side, like the, the more thematic thread of the filmmaking side, do you feel like it's like, is it weird at all that that character is not real? Like, I feel like that's just such like the emotional like crescendo of of that whole arc about with this bully, this second, you know, 
I forget Logan stands up for him against Chad because he's made him feel, you know, like simultaneously like he's larger he than life. He has conflicted also, feelings. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. Yeah. Yeah, but the fact that that's not a real experience does, does that undermine it at all for you? Not he really. He just made this up I like mean, he's like he's like fabricated this person who he made feel this way. I mean, not that the other people haven't felt that way by him. I'm not saying that isn't real, but mm -hmm. it seems such an important yeah, part no, of I'm, his. Journey. I guess that I I guess that's how I see it. That he has probably had a experience like this at some point, or um, has learned this lesson in some way about. I mean, what I find interesting about it is that, like you're saying, he has conflicted feelings, right? It's like, oh, on the one hand, like you made me look really good in this, but also That's now it's I like am. you've set a standard for me that I cannot, the actual me cannot live up to. Um, so mm -hmm. I I, th I find it fascinating because it's like here he's he's early on discovering, like, people are going to interpret films in different ways than perhaps how you intended right as a filmmaker um, yeah that's just like part of the process um yeah because he says like i don't even remember sammy has a line i can't remember exactly what it is but he's like he can't even really explain why he he filmed him in that particular way he's just like because um, it made a good movie i i don't know you know maybe i i wanted to make you look good maybe i was just holding the camera or whatever like he he doesn't even know but um the reception of that is interesting uh by that character so it doesn't really bother me i mean he was never going to be able to probably fit everything he wanted to in this movie with only relying on um you know stuff that actually happened i think in general it, it still feels very authentic the majority of the movie um mm. and that that trumps this moment for me because the the takeaway from the scene is more interesting um to me than anything else about it so yeah and I, um, and I think that that just to go just to sort of like tie it back to a conversation we were already having earlier i think it also just depends on how you like how you want to read the movie do you want to read this movie as a steven spielberg biopic or do you want to read it as something different mm -hmm. uh, biopics all the time take creative liberties we know this it goes under the radar maybe people don't think about it like that but it is true like there's that everything's exaggerated some things are made up like it's just how it happens but the question is, like, is it more important to you that Steven Spielberg tell the true story of what happened in his life? Or is it more important for him to have made yeah. a movie that draws inspiration from a lot of different things, doesn't tell everything exactly how it was, but it tells something that is true to him, maybe. And it tells something that ultimately is thematically more interesting. I don't know. Like, there's always a, there's a balance of those two things. It's not one or the other, but it's probably comes down to, like, what you care more about. There is a truth in it, sure. not necessarily in the actual not like, a literal happen, but yeah so that and, and that you know again a lot of the film itself this film itself just thinking about the meta layers of it is yeah he him discovering that films can sort of um display a truth that real life perhaps cannot i mean this is this is the benny situation with his mother um mm -hmm. he doesn't see it until he is looking at his footage and more importantly than that she doesn't even see it. His mom doesn't even understand that this is what's going on until she watches the movie in the closet, which is one of the best scenes in the, the film easily. Um, you think, interesting. So you think she didn't really even appreciate it or understand it, really? Yeah, I, do, I don't think she did. I think mm -hmm. because it's an emotional affair, like 
again, to her, she's like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything with him. And she, um, you know, continues to insist that at, at a couple of times in the movie. But it seems like she needs this moment to fully understand the nature of what she is doing and the fact that other people are seeing it in this way and it's not harmless. And now that, that I think is true, but I do that. I agree with that part. I definitely agree with I guess I, I think she knows, I think she could, she could tell you what it is, but the emotional experience of actually understanding what it is probably, I agree with that element for sure. Like the impact that it has on the, her family. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to go back and watch it, obviously, but I, it, it did strike me in the moment that I don't think, I don't know that she understood that she was like having an affair, mm. um, because it is because it is a more subtle type of affair, like it is an emotional affair, right? It is not a physical affair. Um, sure. I think that's that's pretty clear. But again, well, there is it's physical touch. I, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's the film which is what unlocks all of this for her, right? It's. Yeah having to sit in that closet and watch that. So that's another, you know, aspect of the whole filmmaking journey that he's going on that I think is just another layer that is added in this movie, right? Like you're going to yeah, find it, truths you don't like. Yeah. It could just be a simple story of him becoming a filmmaker, but Steven Spielberg is too good for that. Like he has all these little ideas that are going on in here that make it so, uh, you know, a much richer texture, but I guess we were talking about performances to circle back to that. Um, <laughs> I agree. Uh, I think Michelle Williams and Paul Dano. I mean, I think they have great moments in this movie. Both. Sure. I really like Paul Dano's last scene that he has at his apartment with Gabriel LaBelle. That's again, that's kind of the scene where Sammy is saying, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to do this, right. I'm going to have to, you know, kind of leave you guys behind in a way. And he kind of like, his father has finally accepted that this is what needs to happen. Right. And he tells him like, it's okay. You know, like we are always going to know each other. I thought I found that to be like a heartbreaking line because this is his yeah. father, right? Like this is somebody who is more intimately connected to him than anyone, like than anyone could be. Um, and he's saying, we are always going to know each other. Not that we are like always going to be, you know, father and son that we're always going to be family or anything like that. It's like, we are always going to know each other as if he is almost acknowledging that his family, that, that when he goes on this pursuit now filmmaking, like his family is not going to be to him what it once was to Sammy. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just found that like a, a heartbreaking way sort of to express that. And I think, I think that's a really good understated scene from Paul Dano. Other times, but it also makes a lot of sense with this character who's Paul Dano himself, yeah. you know, this the father figure here. I think Bert is his name, right? Um, I think it's it's almost like he's seen what like the things that he's done in his life finally and what Sammy is doing. He doesn't agree, I mean, he makes it very clear that the whole movie it's not what he wants for him, but he's like come to accept it and realize the same way that his family didn't stay together because of the choices he made with his career that Sammy's going to have to face the same reality with this family as well, that, you know, his pursuits may bring him fulfillment just like Bert Bert's pursuits have, have brought fulfillment for him. But, you know, people like Reggie and Mitzi and Bert himself, the relationship's going to change because of those pursuits. Um, yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. And then, I mean, for Michelle Williams, for me, it's the, it's the scene and the, 
what's with the, the dancing, right? Like that's probably her. Scene. Yeah, that's a good one. Again, the scene yeah. in the closet I'm talking about where she's watching yeah. the film. She has great moments. It's just yeah. it is still a little like she's leaning in a little bit too hard sometimes. It is a little the Oscar, hard. the Oscar reel is there, no doubt. Sure. But you know, strangely enough, um, you know, you're you're talking about her like people talking her up a lot for Oscars. She's not gonna win because they have they have campaigned for her in the lead actress category, which is a bizarre decision, I think, um, just from a strategic standpoint. Uh, I mean, I think you could argue that she is a lead in this film, although I would personally say that Gabriel LaBelle is the only lead in the movie. But mm-hmm. um, you could say that there's multiple leads. But this year you have two people in Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh who are like, it seems to be are pretty clearly like, the front runners in this category with distance between them and everyone else. I think you could have, like, I think you could have elided the second name there and just said Kate Blanchett, but I agree about Michelle Yeoh as well. I mean, I, yeah, I still think Michelle Yeoh like is in with a shot, but it, it seems like there is distance between them and everybody else. And that that is probably something that is not going to change even as Oscar yeah. season goes on. Whereas in supporting actress, I don't even know exactly what the race looks. I mean, you have some people from women talking who are in there. You have somebody from everything everywhere is probably going to get in, but you do not have a clear front runner at this stage. Um, and if yeah. Michelle Williams had been in there, I'm sure she would have, would be the front runner. Um, but they've made the, made the decision. They've, they've made their bed and they must lie in it now. Um, again, mm-hmm. I don't really have any particular feelings about it because it's not my favorite. It's not my favorite performance in the movie. Um, and if she's, you know, if she is going up against Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh, those are superior performances to me um, by, by a pretty clear margin. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, everyone is good in the movie. Some people are great. I think the people who are great are the one-offs and the younger actors, The you know. Gabriel LaBelle, Julia Butters, Chloe East, those are like the, the best people. Chloe, Chloe East, uh, her friend in the movie was the is the one girl from Licorice Pizza too. I noticed that. Um, who Gary like has a crush on. And she comes to the mattress store in that one scene. She that that's uh she plays Monica's friend in the movie. Um, the one who was like was dating Logan. Um, Isabel Kuzman? Is that little. The actress? I think that's her name, yeah. Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she was in Licorice Pizza for like a scene or two. Um, Claudia. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking, sorry, I also just yeah. went, I also just went to uh, Gold Derby just to see, even though I know, I feel like we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, Jesse yeah, Buckley did. is like probably the, the front runner right mm-hmm. now. Uh, like you said, mm-hmm. if there is one, maybe Carrie Mulligan from mm-hmm. She Said. I, I don't She's know. Like I, yeah. I guess Jamie Lee Curtis is up there for everything everywhere all at once. I guess. I don't know. Um, Scott, before I wax wide open, before I wax poetic for a moment about the ending of the film, is there any, any other parts that you want to talk about? Any other ideas? Cause you know, it's a long film. Again, there's a lot in it. Um, And we have hit on some things, but. Less thematic and more just like things that I really just enjoyed watching in the movie. So cool to see him make his like Westerns. I mean, like, like the the yeah. Western movies that he's making early on, I think probably middle middle part of the film. So cool to see that. I think you were you. I think you were sort of alluding to this earlier, or if not, then I just misunderstood misinterpreted what you were alluding to. But the, also just showing you like the phys, like the physical process of editing the reels. So cool. 
I, I just loved that. Yeah, stuff. yeah. And all the and, old technology the and everything is like really yeah. cool. Yeah, like getting the eight millimeter also, versus when, 16 millimeter. Yeah, go when ahead. he makes his war film, like the scene that we see from it, like that is Saving Private Ryan. Like we are looking at yeah. the first like, you know, stages of Saving yeah. Private Ryan right there. So that's fun to watch. I want also to so funny to just watch like watch him inspire that guy. And then he just like continues to walk off into the distance at the yeah. end of the scene. That's funny. I wanted to point this out um, as well when we were talking about like sort of the truth aspect of the film. Um, yeah. He goes early in the movie with some of his scout friends to see the man who shot Liberty Balance. And yeah. they're the, the like central idea in the man who shot Liberty Balance is that like the famous quote is when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Right. And that is kind of what he is you know, in some ways doing when he makes this senior skip day film, kind of. Um, he is like sure. printing the yeah. legend, kind of. And even in making this film, right, we're talking about some aspects which may be exaggerated a little bit. He's printing the legend in some some regards, his own legend, but he is printing the, the legend more so than he is printing the fact. Um, so yeah. it's interesting to see, like, he goes to see that film and how much that influences him. Um, you know, in in early stages and even maybe still to today in the way that Steven Spielberg's making films. Um, it's understandable because The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance is a masterpiece, but um, yeah, that just, I found that Even more than that, Print the Legend. Yeah. Yeah, even more than that, Print the Legend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, right, I just, I didn't think that, I didn't think the movie ever waned. Like, I, I liked all of the adolescent stuff. I liked all of the the kid stuff like it just it just works and and the idea of him you know he picks up a camera for the first time in this train to film the train crash right because he not because he's like oh i like love movies or whatever i'm transported by movies but because he's afraid of it right he's afraid of what he sees and his mother is like he needs to feel like he has control over it in order for him to under like to overcome his fear mm -hmm. so he needs to film this and i will say to this point that is nuts that they took that. him to this movie that would have been very <laughs> scary as like a, a seven yeah I bet. i've never seen the greatest show on earth but yeah that train crash i was like dang for 1952 like i can't believe this was in a in a film but cecil b demille like he had a lot of money so um he was He's he was the the mcu director of uh, of the era uh he he had more money than than god probably they didn't show you the full movie movies. but there's actually a portal scene right after this one <laughs> it's probably good that they didn't show the whole movie because it's like three and a half hours long uh and a lot of people say it's one of the worst best picture winners but if it gave us uh if it gave us steven spielberg it was worth it um sure okay the ending scott again like i said we can't just end with the Paul Dano scene because it's Steven Spielberg and he has to leave us on like a little optimistic note. And what happens is he goes to CBS and first he's talking with Greg Grunberg's character, who's like a TV producer um, about mm -hmm. directing an episode of Hogan's Heroes or assistant direct, not, not directing, but like being an assistant to an assistant or something. And then Greg Grunberg is like, oh, well, but you actually want to make movies, right? Well, here you go. go. Go down the hall into the office and you can go talk to one of the greatest, the greatest living filmmaker or whatever. And he goes down into the office and 
talks to the secretary and then sits down without realizing, you know, whose office he's in. And then you start to hear the famous Max Steiner score from uh, the searchers. And he starts looking at the wall and he sees, you know, the, the searchers, the man who shot Liberty Valance, the grapes of wrath, yeah. like, and we realize he's in John Ford's office. Right. Um, and then a few minutes later, and I knew, of course, that David Lynch was in the film, and and you hadn't uh, seen him, yet. he had not yeah. show, shown up yet. So um, you knew what was about to happen. And in walks David Lynch with his eye patch, playing yeah. um, John Ford. Goes into his office. You know, Sammy follows him in there, and he like start if the way he Where's lights the his cigar is hilarious. Yeah. The way he lights his cigar, just like it takes him forever to do it. And he's turning it around and turning it. And then he takes like eight puffs before like fully even acknowledging Sammy's yeah. presence. And, um, you know, he's like, you know, Sammy's like telling him he really wants to make movies. He loves his movies, all this stuff or whatever. You know, do you, do you have any advice? And John Ford tells him to go, you know, look at the pictures on the wall where's the horizon in the picture? Uh, well, it's on the bottom. Uh, where's the horizon on the, on, oh, it's on the top. Where's the horizon in this one? Oh, it's in the middle. Or I think it's just top bottom are the pictures on the wall. And then he says, you know, if the horizon's on the top, you're good. If it's on the bottom, you're good. If it's in the middle, I forget exactly how boring. he phrases it or whatever, but yeah. I think he says um, it's boring. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then he's like, no, oh no, actually I think it's way more, I think it's yeah. way more vulgar than that. I think he says it's shit. Or I think it like is that. too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's like, no, get the hell out of my office or whatever. And yeah, then to, to cap it all off. So he runs out of the building and is like all, you know, enthused and everything that he had this interaction. And then he starts to walk down the studio lot, basically, you know, towards the horizon. But the horizon is in the middle of the shot when it starts off. And it basically the the final shot of the movie is like a joke because it it shifts and like. Uh, the camera just like kind of awkwardly shifts up hands so up. that the, yeah 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 so that the the horizon is now on the top um and in the bottom therefore it, it, in the bottom yeah, sorry. yeah he yeah. moves up to so it's on the bottom yeah right. yeah um and so he you know he basically i love it because it's funny but it's also like i'm still figuring it out right i after 50 years or whatever i'm steven spielberg but i'm still like I am the person that I am because of the advice that I have been given. And sometimes I he's winking. Remember that advice. Um, so it, it was it's I was just like smiling so huge um, when this was happening. I want to say like this movie is very funny, honestly, at times, like not just that scene, but there are a lot of pretty funny moments throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. No one in my I mean, theater was laughing except for me. I was like, oh, people were people were dying at the Monica scene. I know because it's funny. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they were. I was like, who are these like people just know, don't understand movies in Charlotte? Sorry, boring. people. I, I guess I don't know. I, I was I was disappointed that people weren't reacting more because there are some really funny parts in the movie. But, um, yeah, it's Scott. The movie's incredible. Like I said, um, I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, I, I think it can be enjoyed by everyone, but if you love movies, like the, it's going to have everything you want in here. Although it is not just simply, uh, you know, like I've said, over sentimentalized, nostalgic pap. Um, there's real heft and real ideas to what's going on here, um, as you would expect from from Steven Spielberg. Favorite scene or moment, Scott? 
you talked about the scene from oh shoot michelle williams with her in the closet earlier which is a great scene i like another scene i guess i'll say i'm gonna say a couple sorry uh one just image that i really like that's similar to what you were talking about with michelle williams is i i love the scene when he's like still really young and he's making the he's like made his first movie or whatever with the train crash and done it himself and he's like holding his hands up or whatever to yeah to get the um to get the sh the image rather than on the wall, just onto his hands. I thought that's a really cool image. In terms of favorite scene, I think it's going to be just him shooting the westerns, right? If not shooting the westerns, then editing them. Like the the whole scene where he's poking holes in the film when the gunshots are happening to make it seem like they're really shooting, yeah. as opposed to just like a, like a sound effect. I mean, I just think that's so cool. I just had a huge kind of like you're talking about in the last scene of the movie, a huge grin on my face watching him do that. Um, granted they don't show you actually him poking holes in it they just they show it with it like before and after and then he's talking with I think talking with his dad maybe after or something about it yeah and I like that I just think it's great I like that yeah. I like that scene where he's talking with his dad because his dad said like he's asking him oh how'd you do it he explains he's like oh well you're kind of we're kind of the same like the the things that we do um like because I'm an engineer or whatever and we have to get our people you know in line to to do what we want mm -hmm. or whatever and um yeah. He's like, yeah, kind of, but it's, <laughs> he's like, it's yeah, like, yeah, it shows the, it shows the tension because it's like yeah. the father, he's, he understands the similarities in like the process of what they're doing, but he still sees like his line of work is like, he is doing something important. He is yeah. producing something important. Whereas, you know, it's just a cool hobby. He's what, playing with some toys. What Sammy is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, so another great scene, an image I liked, which again is kind of showing his eye for filmmaking when he is, when his grandmother is dying um, and yeah. he's there in the hospital room and he is like looking at her pulse, right? He is watching her like neck um, where her pulse is and you see it like start to slow and then like eventually it stops as she dies. Um, I thought that was just like cool how they focused on that detail but it's like he's focusing on that detail which obviously attention to details like that is important for being a filmmaker so um where was the horizon but the best Scott? the best scene is the ending like uh i mean it's even though the film has so many great scenes the best scene is the ending uh it's really not close it's probably the best scene of the year um david lynch king state kings it's for uh, it certainly is for you i will say that is Align just all for your, me. Other all people the will enjoy like. it, sure. But well, yes. you're just saying like it's uh, it's by far the best scene of the year. Is I, I just like for you, yeah. No, I, I'm saying it's by far this uh, the best scene in the movie. Uh, for you sure. know, best scene of the year. You know, results may vary. There have been some great scenes, obviously. The the Juilliard mm -hmm. scene from Tar also stands out, but um, sure. but for me, it, it's probably the tops right now. Uh, what's your score, Scott? Nine point it's not a perfect film, but it is a 10. Um, it's probably my favorite film of the year so far. Um, just, again, the vibes are incredible. The little details are incredible. The performances, for the most part, are, are incredible. It, it's everything that, you know, has made Steven Spielberg um, the master that he is, and then some. Um, so I can't recommend it enough. It's a joke that this movie's only made five and a half million. I don't even know if you're going to be able to see it in theaters anymore by the time this episode comes out, but it is coming on streaming, I believe, December 13th. So, uh, well, not streaming, but well, VOD. VOD. Uh, VOD. Yeah. yeah. So watch it. Um, 
watch it, watch it, watch it. That's I beg of you. <laughs> All right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of the Fablemans. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the uh, Sight and Sound Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time, which was released uh, this past week. Pretty big event in the world of film dialogue and discourse. So we will be uh, getting into the the list. The reappraisal. Uh, yeah, the, we will get we will be getting into the hashtag woke version of the Sight and Sound Top 100 um, when we come back from the break. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. back to this episode of some like it scott scott before the break i talked about how we were going to get into the sight and sound top 100 list that was released for those who aren't familiar with this um every 10 years sight and sound which is a pretty esteemed british film publication um, compiles this poll of the top 100 greatest films of all time um there really have two separate polls one is the is filmmakers so everybody from Martin Scorsese to Ty West to Sai Ming Leong, they all submit lists. Um, Rajamouli. Their 10 greatest films of all time. Yeah, SS Rajamouli submitted a list this time. Um, 10 greatest films of all time, not in any order. They can add like little comments about, um, you know, their picks as well. Uh, and Sight and Sound creates a top 100 for the directors based on that. But even the, the one that is even more kind of a big deal is the critics poll, which uh, oh, this time they had over 1600 like critics and esteemed film writers who made their submissions. Again, 10 films um, not ranked that they consider to be the greatest um, films of all time. And they do it every 10 years, like I said. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of a, it's a big deal because of how, you know, many people they get it's it is kind of considered the authoritative poll of of the greatest you know movies of all time like if there's one list that you're going to say this is like the list to look at um it, you would probably Not point to afi this no because afi I mean, aren't they only picking American films? I think um, I'm not even sure. If... It is the American Film Institute, I guess. Yeah, yeah. probably is only American film. I'm trying. I'm just. But Ty West was only picking American movies. So. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you need you need uh, you need balance in the list. But um, I think uh, anyway, it's it's kind of looked at as the authority, and that this list in many ways is like very important for canonization of certain films um and like what is going to be considered like in the canon um and so you know some people again like maybe like ty west did he just like picked the 10 films which you know mean the mean the most to him um other people i think have a more strategic approach of like again understanding that this is like this poll could have a significant effect on like the canonization of film like what do i think needs to be talked about more needs of greater representation needs to be you know recognized and so that often leads to you know films by um 
people of color, films by women, foreign language films, LGBTQ films, like getting put on the list um, because people are trying to be conscious. I mean, some people I'm sure are, are trying to be conscious of, um, you know, what gets added to the canon and the fact that historically, you know, American films made by white males have probably dominated um, the canon and discourse and everything. So um, in light of that, Scott, the number one film um, in this year's, in the 2022 Sight and Sound poll, um, for the first time coming in at number one is, uh, it's the shortened title is Jean Dielman. Um, it's a French film uh, from the late French filmmaker Chantal Ackerman. Um, I don't recall where it was on the 2012 list, but it was it was high, I believe. But it's it, like it ten or eleven. One. Okay, um, it dethroned Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, um, which had been the number one film, I think, for a couple times in a row, um, maybe, uh, or maybe maybe it was just one time, and before that, it was Susan Kane for a while. But um, John Dillman coming in at number one, which people were kind of surprised about, um, just because it's not it's you know not as well known probably as any of the other films that are in the top 10 uh, by, you know, just by, to, to the average ear. Um, it's not really the average ear that's voting in this thing, to be fair. But um, anyway, that it, it was a little bit of a surprise, um, but kind of to the point I'm making, you know, um, Jean Dielman is a film about a, the domestic life of a woman in France um, who also, it happens to be a sex worker um, and it kind of, it's a very long film that really just kind of portrays, I think, her routine, um, which includes a lot of domestic duties. Like there's apparently a big uh, infamous scene of her that is just her peeling potatoes for a while. Um, but then also it's weaving in, you know, the fact that she is a sex worker. Um, and it is considered like one of the first and most important feminist films ever made. Obviously, Chantal Ackerman is, a, you know, was a woman. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I do wonder um, if people's interest in, you know, canonizing films that historically have not been canonized um, led to Jean Dielman just kind of making its way up the list. I have no doubt that it's a great film. Um, it does make me want to watch it, certainly. Um, but it's, a fa it's fascinating that it came in there at number one. Also on the list, Vertigo is number two, as you might expect, Susan Kane number three. Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story, which some people had speculated might um, take the number one spot. Um, it was number four. Um, the the highest ranking 21st century film, Scott, was In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai's film, which came in at number five. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, number six. Claire Denis' Beau Travail coming in at seven. Uh, another 21st century film, uh, Mulholland Drive by the aforementioned David Lynch coming in at number eight. Uh, Man for Man with a Movie Camera, the Soviet, you know, famed Soviet um, silent film was number nine. And then Singing in the Rain, uh, the classic Hollywood musical, number 10. Um, Scott, I, just to toot my own horn for a moment, I, uh, I did make uh, my own personal list, which, you know, should be given no credibility uh, whatsoever, because I have no credibility whatsoever. And while I may have seen uh, more films than the average person, um, I certainly haven't seen more films than the average contributor to this poll. But um, anyway, uh, two of the films which I voted for, actually, no, only one, 
that's my bad because the godfather was number 12 it did not make the top 10 soon it's only one of the films i voted for made it into the top 10 um which was mahal i assume is mahal but yeah the godfather was up there um do the right thing which i also voted for was up there um there's there's a few films in there it was not on my 10 but uh, city lights which the charlie chaplin movie um was number 36 i voted for that one um yeah anyway so i was i was happy with the results i i will say though i've only seen 35 of the 100 films as a whole and i have but i have seen seven of the top 10 so i haven't seen john gilman i haven't seen tokyo story and i have not seen man with the movie camera but i have seen the others that we mentioned there um but I have to say, you know, there, there's a lot of conversation going on around this. Well, first of all, Scott, what are your thoughts on the top 10? Uh, sure. <laughs> I don't know. I don't see if the, it, difference if between you and, <laughs> the difference between you and me, Scott, is that I don't care about this list. I don't mean that to be like to sound like dismissive or anything like that. But like, I don't know. Like, I think it's interesting. A list like this would make me want to go like watch certain movies. But even yeah. having Gene Dillman be number one on this list doesn't make me want to go watch a 200 minute movie about a woman peeling potatoes i know that's not the film is about i'm being i'm being tongue-in-cheek yeah but like that doesn't make me want to go watch that movie i mean maybe more than i did before yeah but sure yeah like it does make me want to go watch tokyo story probably just because i'm also more interested in watching more of those kinds of movies and uh, i shouldn't say those kind specifically watching more jet like japanese or eastern um eastern asian filmmakers um whether it be korean or even um you know other filmmakers of that ilk because i feel like i've been discovering some modern films that but then going back and watching something like tokyo story i mean i watched you know rashomon and um seven samurai earlier this year both of which yeah akira kurosawa films that you know i came across didn't come across them i sought them out earlier this year and you know having experiences like that you know watching Ryusuke Hamaguchi, probably starting with something like Ryusuke Hamaguchi last year, and then wanting to go watch films, not that necessarily are like similar or inspiring his films, but just watching films of from those cultures makes interesting. So then seeing Tokyo Story come in the top 10 of this list, that makes me want to go watch, you know, Hirokazu Ozu film or whatnot. So yeah, yeah, I think that, it, yeah, um, it on the margin, this influences me, but like at the end of the day, like, I'll, I mean, again, I don't mean anything by this whatsoever, but like it wasn't my choice to talk about this today. Um, that's just because I just don't put much stock into it. I think it's interesting still, but it's just like not important to me. Um, the list makes sense, but also like obviously, and this is the case for you too, like wouldn't have been my list, but I also haven't seen most of these movies. I've seen oh, in the top yeah. 10. I've seen, you know, two of them, three of them. I haven't seen that many mm-hmm. of them, so. Also, I know that everyone loves Vertigo, and I know I'm in the minority on this, but that movie's ending is terrible. Like, what? how is this movie number two? We're not going to get into that. But uh, The rest of the movie is great, though. I, I would, the rest of the movie is, is great. The point I was going to make is, yeah, there there are people who are kind of coming out like, oh, you know, John Dealman, number one, like, this is just pretentious, whatever. Blah, blah. My <laughs> whole thing is, and just kind of feeling that way about the list, my whole thing is, we are talking about something that, uh, you know, six over 1,600 of, you know, the best minds when it comes to film. People have devoted their lives to studying film, have contributed to. As a film fan, if looking at that list does not make you 
curious about some of these films you know maybe not maybe not gene dillman yeah right because it's 200 minutes or whatever it's about peeling potatoes but about something on this list because oh it's too pretentious or whatever like i i don't understand that thinking at all right like at the very least something that is this definitive um and has uh, you know um compiled so many the minds again of so many elite thinkers when it comes to film like it's something that you know needs to be credited and like uh, like i said i I feel like anyone who is interested in interested in film should be curious about oh hey well i have never seen pother panchali which is on the list oh well it's number 35 you know i should check this movie out or i'm curious i am more curious about this film now than i was um before or i now know this film existed when i didn't before um Mm -hmm. yeah and so I, i think the the perspectives of some people who are just dismissing it altogether outright as like, okay, that's fine. You know, enjoy Marvel films, I guess. I, I don't really know, but um, that's, I don't know. It's kind I, of I think it goes both ways. Like I think it's totally fine that like people are interested in this list and aren't interested in these movies. Um, again, like the reason, the reason why this list doesn't make me interested to go watch Gene Delman is not because it's pretentious. It's because I'm just not interested in watching that. Movie. Like I'm just not interested in watching that movie. It has nothing to do with, you know, whether I think the movie is too pretentious. It's just like not something that that sparks my interest right now. But like in a like a year from now, like a year ago, I would have told you, you know, I would have told you that like drive my car on paper is something that really like sparks my interest either. So it's just like you have to come to these things and like, like at the right time and the right moments and this and like what mood I'm in changes dramatically over the course of the year. Like, you know, if I'm if I'm coming hot off Top Gun Maverick and you hand me like uh, Jean Dillman, I'm gonna be like, I'm, I'm sure okay, will. I think I don't need I don't need this um but you know if you if you come in at a different time it's just different right so yeah i think the, the people who are just saying like why does anyone care about this mo- like this list it's just like i think that you're only just like projecting a little bit buddy like i think like what you want from movies is different or, than what other people want from movies yeah. and just not everyone has to care about the sight and sound poll but a lot of people do care about the sight and sound poll i mean yeah i i mean of course it is a matter of taste as much as everything like personal preference as much as everything is i think even to say something like oh this list is not for me well i mean this list is for you right like do you like movies then then yes that i mean i mean you know it's one thing if you don't want to watch them fine whatever but like this list you know to go back to my point it's it has a lot of people who have contributed to it a lot of people who know a lot about movies um and I feel like that. I just feel like that should make you more curious about something on here. But sorry, I can't. I can't let you say that. If they saying that to me or saying that in general, I, I'm no, not to you, not to you, not to you. Okay, okay, I've, I've lost it at this no. point. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. no, no, no. There, yeah. there are other people who I have seen with worse takes. Sure, I'm just saying. I, I think. Pe- I think some people. I think people come to movies for different reasons, and and some people. In fact, I even say like the majority of people who go to the movie theater today probably just like ultimately don't care what like I don't know David Ehrlich think thinks are like the 10 movies you should watch before you die and like I just say like that's fine like whatever like it doesn't matter to me I think that it'd be cool if they did care about that like it'd be cool if they wanted to watch movies for a variety of different reasons just like I feel like we do on the pot like we we watch movies every single week and different movie like we go see different movies for different reasons right like well you go see the Fablemans because you want to have this sort of like mix of cinematic and like themes from someone like Spielberg, you go see drive my car just to bring up a movie where I mentioned because you've heard, or you want to see this like incredibly like deep contemplative piece 
about like life and the meaning of like recovering from trauma via art and things like that. But then like you go see Top Gun Maverick because you just want to have a good time. And like it would be ideal if everyone saw all kinds like saw movies for all different kinds of reasons. But the reality is like I think it, our movie culture is evolving to a point where even more so than it used to, a lot of people only want one kind of movie experience. And I think that is a shame, whether that's like right or wrong, yeah. like whatever, it doesn't matter to me. But like, I wish people wanted to go see something like drive my car in a movie theater just as much as they want to go see Avengers Endgame or Top Gun Maverick or whatever, the Batman. Um, but like, I don't know. I just like come to terms with the fact that that's not true. And the fact that like most people don't care about what, I don't know, Al Alonzo Duralde submitted to sight and sound. Like, it's just like, you know, whatever, like, that's fine. I mean, it's not even so much the individual ballots. It's just the fact that, you know, they're yeah, all yeah, compiled yeah. as part of yeah. this. But anyway, that we've gotten off topic. Um, the What I did want to mention, though, is the some of the new additions and the movies that dropped off of the list, just kind of as an interesting discussion point. Um, you know, one of the most talked about things is the fact that three films from the 2010s were added um, to the, was it three or four? I think it was three. I think it was Get Out, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Moonlight. And there, so there were four then, because Parasite also. Um, Get oh, Out, Parasite, Parasite there, there Portrait yeah. of a Lady on Fire, and Moonlight were all added. Um, all films that are very well loved and appreciated. So probably not a surprise there. I think what some people have had an until issue after with, the again, poll was released. <laughs> until after the poll Portrait, was released. Yeah, until after no the poll was released. Portrait of a <laughs> Portrait of Lady on Fire did come in at number 30. So it was the highest ranking of those yeah. films. Um, you know, it was ahead of movies like Eight and a Half, right? Fellini, Fellini's like seminal classic, Psycho, um, you know, City Lights, one of the defining silent films, Some Like It Hot, one of the defining comedies of all time, Bicycle Thieves, which has been in the top 10 on many of the sight and sound Poll, it's been, it, it was number of, one at one point, to be clear. It was yes, number it one. Was. Like in yeah. the early years of the poll, because they've been doing it for quite a while now. But, um, yep. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire came in higher than those. I mean, if that's how the people voted, that's how the people voted. I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a great film. I haven't seen a lot of, you know, the films that it came in ahead of. So, um, I, you know, I don't really have much to say. About what came in ahead of all but 29 other movies in the canon of film history, Scott. You haven't seen all of those other movies to be able to. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm talking about the films on the list. I know. But, I know. Um, yeah. but so, I mean, I think it's a great film. I, I think, uh, uh, in terms of if people are saying that simply because the film is too new, I don't agree with that. Um, sure. That it doesn't deserve to be there because it came out in 2019. Who cares? Um, these people, I guess. But if, if people are saying <laughs> yeah. that because they think eight and a half is a better film, then fine. So be it. Like, I, I, you know, I haven't seen eight and a half. It, it, you know, it very well could be a better film. Um, but that is something that has sparked a lot of a lot of discourses. People kind of turning against Portrait of a Lady on Fire, despite being fans of it, because it rated so highly. Um, if they had come in at number so 95, like Get Out did, then they're probably just would have been like, yeah, it felt like less that it was Portrait of a Lady on Fire on the list and more that it was number 30. Um, but yeah, I guess no, exactly. That's kind of what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other notable films that got added, Scott, um, Chunking Express, another, you know, Wong Kar Wai film, The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining was not on the list. 
Um, the only two animated films on the list, Scott, also were new additions. Those are both by Hayao Miyazaki, Spirited Away at 75, and My Neighbor Totoro at 72. Um, Goodfellas somehow has not been on the list. There was not on the list last time. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of crazy that, um, you know, what many consider to be Scorsese's greatest film, 63, um, on the new list. Although I think Raging Bull surely ranked higher, right, um, on the the overall list, I would think so. But I'm scrolling through right now. Um, Taxi Driver was 29. Wow, Raging Bull was not on the list at all? Okay, I was going to say, yeah, I don't think Raging Bull is on the list, but Taxi Driver is, yeah. Okay, right. Raging Bull dropped off. It was number 53, and then uh, it yeah. dropped off. But Taxi Driver came in the highest at 29 among Scorsese films. Um, the Apartment, Billy Wilder's The Apartment um, was not on the list prior. It's now at number 54, although, again, Some Like Great It Hot um, was higher as far as uh, Wilder films are concerned. Jane Campion's The Piano, a new edition at number 50. Um, and I don't know how this was not on the list before, Scott, but Do the Right Thing um new edition and it comes all the way in at 24 so um the woke reappraisal for you yeah uh, i mean well yeah <laughs> i guess so but i mean that's again that's a film that i put in my top 10 and that i've always felt is one of the greatest films ever made so uh long sure. overdue but i'm glad it is getting its justice now uh the film that came in that was the highest new edition was agnes Varda's cleo from five to seven um, again, something I'm kind of surprised wasn't already on there, but number 14 is where it came in. In terms of films that dropped off of the list, Scott, um, Raging Bull. Some of them include Intolerance, right? I believe that's the uh, D.W. Griffith um, film, which probably not a surprise that it dropped off given his uh, his history. Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch dropped off, and some films that I was disappointed to see dropping off, Scott. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, honestly, uh, you know, obviously the classic David Lean epic. And then a couple films that I voted for in my personal, um, my personal poll, Nashville, Robert Altman's film. In fact, no Robert Altman movies made the list. Uh, that was at 73 previously. And then Rio Bravo, Howard Hawks's um, Western, which is another one of my favorite films. Uh, number 63. Previously, it has dropped off now. Uh, we mentioned Raging Bull dropped off, Touch of Evil, and uh, The Magnificent Ambersons, so a couple of uh, Orson Welles movies dropping off there. And then the highest uh, film that dropped all the way off, The Godfather Part Two, um, yeah. was number 21, and it dropped all the way off the list. Maybe, you know, I, I don't know if people feel differently about sequels nowadays because of <coughs> because it's become, I don't know, something of a loaded term i guess when you're when you're talking about you know these sort of film academics maybe sequels are maybe increasingly seen as not serious um but the godfather part two deserves to be on the list in my opinion i mean just again for my limited knowledge like it should not be disqualified just by being virtue of being a sequel and by virtue of the fact that maybe the godfather part one is a little bit better um it's also like Raiders so, is on the. I know like Raiders of the Lost Ark is on the list, but wouldn't be my pick for best indie if you're going to put an indie movie on the list. Isn't Raiders of the Lost Ark on the list or no? No, no. I'm making that up. It's not. Yeah, it's not on the list. No. Oh shoot. Okay. What I thought I saw. It. You know, maybe it was in someone's ballot. I bet it was on someone's ballot. That's what yep. I saw. Spielberg didn't have any films on the list, I believe. So that serves him right. 
yeah, maybe he'll make a good one someday and then he can make the list. Um, but yeah, Spielberg had no films in the list. You know, he's he he makes the crowd pleasers, I guess. That's probably one of the reasons why he didn't get in there. But you would have, you know, you would have thought. I mean, I think if one of I was going to make the list, it would have been Jaws. Jaws but um, yeah, yeah, but it didn't. I voted for Schindler's List, obviously, in my top 10. But, I guess Schindler's um, List could have made it. They don't, I don't know. My I, vote. Yeah. <coughs> Are you serious? Jaws. That's, I mean, rude of them. Do what? I said that's rude of them to not count your votes. <laughs> oh yeah, I know, right? Well, they counted it for film spotting. That was what I submitted it for because film spotting the pop- podcast was doing a listener poll saying listener. submit your top ten. So I submitted mine, um, and Schindler's List obviously wasn't there. I mean, that'd be my number one of the films that I've seen in terms of greatest films I've ever seen. But um, sure. it didn't make the list again. If a Spielberg film was going to make it, I think it would have been Jaws. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Scott, you you confess to not really being too interested in the list. Is there anything else that you wanted to to note here? You know, I kind of just wanted to hit the hit the highlights. If people are more interested, which maybe no one listening to this is that interested in it either. But um, if you are, no, I don't obviously there's fair. a lot. Of... I hope not. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope not. But um, if if you are interested in it, there, you know, of course, there's plenty more that you can seek out about. Um, plenty more plenty more conversation that's going on about this list and the individual ballots also there is there is plenty more conversation (laughs) happening on a twitter feed of your choice uh about this list not much of which is uh particularly inspiring i'll say that much yeah it's just a lot of people shouting at each other for the most part but um you know i didn't really talk about the director's poll because i you know that's just more time i don't want to take up but um the critics poll is kind of the bigger deal but the director's poll is interesting in terms of looking at the individual ballots and seeing the films that people nominated and if you get the sight and sound magazine um then you can see the individual ballots um and a lot of them have been posted on twitter so um you know that's that's kind of cool to see because like i said a lot of very very esteemed filmmakers you know contributed and regularly contribute um yeah. so you get a you get a good balance of people like again like martin scorsese like um bong joon ho i'm trying to think of some, yeah i mean yeah bong joon ho is in there and then you get people who are like you know more contemporary like populist filmmakers in some regard like you get gina prince bythewood submitted ty west submitted um I don't know if he did this time, but Peter Farrelly was included in the last one, I believe. Um, so you get, you know, you get a, a, a true, variety a true of populist. perspectives. The it is not just ever. what it is yeah. not just what some people would be like. Oh, it's a bunch of you know academics sitting in a room with their nose noses turned up. Um, Peter Farrelly also gets included. Actually, I believe Adam McKay was in this one. I think I did see that he. I did see Adam um, McKay. His belt. Okay. Belt. Also, as much shit as we give Adam McKay on this podcast. His ballot was pretty good. Yeah, I can't remember what was on there, but I mean, sure, he probably, you know, broken clocks are right occasionally. Um, but... Exactly two times per day, I believe, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I don't doubt that he could have submitted a good list. But there you go, the Sight and Sound list, top 100. It's out. Um, and you can check that out now on the Sight and Sound website. Also, you can order the magazine if you're really curious about it. But just wanted to spend. A few minutes talking about that because it is kind of a sight and sound did not pay for that advertisement but we'll take it (laughs) yeah if if they want to though that would be great um all right scott uh that should do it for this episode of some like it scott where can our listeners find you on social media 
at shelton 2013 where I will not be talking about the sight and sound poll. But okay, yeah, we get it. We get it. Go. I'm just making a joke. Um, at Scarvy no, Dent is where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. At Scarvy Dent is where I'm at on social media. Um, you can follow me over there. And yeah, I might be liking tweets or saying something about the sight and sound. So there you go. The two genders. Either you're interested in inside the sight <laughs> and sound list or you're not. Um, That'll do it for this episode of the podcast. There's two kinds of we film fans, to... Scott. There's people who care about the sight and sound list, and there's people who don't. People who like Neil Diamond and people who don't. Um, that'll do it for yeah. this episode of the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have and you'd like to support us, uh, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Um, even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, like, subscribe, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. If we were in your Spotify wrapped, that would be cool if you let us know. <laughs> uh, we probably oh, weren't, but um, yeah. I, actually, I know I know one one of our listeners. Shout out to Brad. I don't know if he listened. I want to know if anyone's watched end. thirty thousand, listened to thirty thousand, whatever <laughs> minutes or whatever of whatever yeah. it was that that Sean Finnessy was reaching. Somebody who watched like thirty thousand minutes picture, of, the big, yeah. of the big picture. I'm just like, what the hell. Well, shout out to Brad. I don't know if you listened all the way this deep into the episode, but he did. He did send me his photo that spotted that some like it. Scott was number two on his Spotify rap. So thank you, Brad. We appreciate your support. Oh, yeah. Um, what, what, what do we need to take down next year? What's number one? The big picture. OK, so there you go. All right. I'm fine with that being number one there. They produce a better podcast than us. There's really no denying that. But um, yeah, that's Spotify. But, uh, yeah. We hope that Brad and uh, the rest of our listeners and maybe new listeners as well. Who knows? We'll be back for our next episode of the podcast. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.